Welcome back to Rockford Reading Daily. Today we are going to begin reading Revolutionary Suicide by Huey P. Newton. But before we do that, I would like to ask you to please share a link to this episode on whichever social media platforms you frequent the most often. I would also like to ask you to, or to remind you, that every day at 8 o'clock a.m. we put out new episodes of Rockford Reading Daily across all streaming platforms. And every Tuesday, we put out new episodes of From Rockford, hosted by Ari Perez and myself. And every Thursday, we put out new episodes of The Social Construct of Leslie, hosted by myself. And every day on YouTube and Facebook, we release videos from a series entitled Live from Occupy City Hall. So be sure to check those out, subscribe to the YouTube page, and like us on Facebook to keep up to date with those. Now, previously on Rockford Reading Daily. We completed Freedom is a Constant Struggle by Angela Y. Davis and learned a lot about the importance of intersectionality, the importance of globalizing our struggles. We, we spoke about the connections that mass incarceration have all over the world from Israel to United States of America to South Africa and we spoke about the importance of collective collectiveness over individualism. Today, we began to read Revolutionary Suicide, and uh, Huey P. Newton and Angela Davis are, I think, can be considered contemporaries for a certain time period. And one of the things we've tried to do with the Rock for Reading Daily series is to, just as often as we read about things that are going on presently, also reach back and read things that were written in the past or written about the past. And so Revolutionary Suicide will take us back into a, a time before 2022. Introduction by Frederica Newton. It has been 20 years since my late husband, Huey P. Newton, was shot and killed on the same streets of Oakland, California, that had witnessed his dramatic ascent as leader of the Black Panther Party two decades earlier. From 1966, when the party was founded to its demise around 1980, Huey stood at the vanguard of the Black Liberation Movement. For most people, then and now, this legendary role is best personified in a photograph taken at the behest of Eldridge Cleaver, who sought to make a militant public statement about the party and its leader. In the picture, Huey is seated in a tall wicker chair looking defiantly at the camera, a rifle held in his right hand and a spear in his left. Eldridge's intended message was a symbolic bridging of the spear and the gun, or, put another way, the transference of the cultural nationalism of, of the past to a revolutionary culture in the future. This volatile image resonated deeply in an era marked by scores of riots and rebellions in black communities across the country. Later, when the photograph appeared on the cover of Revolutionary Suicide, the image of Huey as the intrepid African-American freedom fighter was further cemented in the public's consciousness. As with all controversial figures, however, there were complicated and unseen dimensions beneath the famous public persona which his autobiography makes abundantly clear. When Revolutionary Suicide was first published in 1973, readers were offered a rare glimpse into the private life of the party's founder. 
not that people hadn't been reading and hearing all about Huey for years. He started making local headlines when he and Bobby Seale launched the Black Panther Party in Oakland. Their armed self-defense patrols of the police caused an immediate stir in the press, so much so that a conservative state assemblyman introduced legislation the following year that proposed outlawing the party's constitutional right to bear arms. One can imagine the alarm felt in Sacramento when a caravan of Black Panthers with rifles appeared on the steps of the state capitol to protest the, quote, Panther Bill, end quote. As with the police patrols, this demonstration was performed in full accordance with the law. Huey was a dedicated student of the California Penal Code and made certain the party's actions were legal. People today often don't realize that walking down the street with a rifle was within the laws of the time. White racist militia groups like the Minutemen and the John Birch Society, for example, had in fact been driving through our communities with guns displayed for some time. Although these groups were better armed than the Black Panthers, the ruling establishment did not perceive whites with guns to be a threat to their interests, and no attempt was made to curtail their activities. Once the Panther Bill was finally passed in the spring of 1967, Huey brought an end to the open display of firearms. Nevertheless, guns would continue to be closely associated with him, whether he chose them to be or not. This association reached new heights that fall when he, excuse me, this, is, this association reached new heights that fall when Huey was charged with shooting and killing an Oakland police officer. He had been stopped in his car early one morning while looking for parking. Most local officers knew Huey by sight, making police harassment a routine procedure for him. Without asking for identification, the officer identified Huey by name, going so far as to ridicule him as the, quote, great, great Huey P. Newton, end quote. He then ordered Huey from the car and proceeded to knock him to the ground with an unexpected blow to the face. Shots were fired and the officer dropped over dead. Huey maintained that he was innocent, insisting that an unknown gunman had fired the shots. To the city fathers, this was an open and shut case of murder. The most famous black American revolutionary since Malcolm X had acted out his rage against the police. For the black masses and the white left, however, the charge became a cause celebre. The movement to, quote, free Huey, end quote, coalesced overnight with hundreds of supporters taking to the streets to protest his innocence. Meanwhile, Journalists from around the United States and abroad descended on Oakland to report on the sensational trial, providing the Black Panthers for the first time with not only a national, but also an international stage. Millions of people who have been fed the establishment slander against the party since its inception were now given the opportunity to meet its well-spoken leader and listen to his platform laid out by him. This exposure led to a rapid period of growth for the Black Panthers over the next two years so much so that when Huey was acquitted and released from prison in 1971, he barely recognized the party or its members. What once had been a local phenomenon of a dozen comrades now counted more than 40 chapters throughout the United States as well as those in Australia, Polynesia, England, India, Israel, and Algeria, where our international section was headquartered. Huey left prison a major celebrity, which was an identity he did not want or welcome. 
He understood that leaders of social protest movements have frequently been turned into celebrities by the media, and the effectiveness of these individuals to lead was destroyed in the process. Besides, genuine social change didn't come from celebrities, Huey argued, but from the people themselves. He never lost sight of the fact that only the masses had the ability to transform society, and the party's slogan, quote, all power to the people, end quote, was a potent testament to this belief. Still, he couldn't fully escape the trappings of his iconic status. In spite of his resistance, Huey personified the Black Liberation Movement at a time when African Americans were in desperate need of leadership. The Civil Rights Movement had wound down with some of its most prominent figureheads murdered and the movement splintered. The Black Panthers stepped into this historical gulf and their rise marked a transition from civil rights agitation, per se, to a revolutionary cause demanding nothing less than a comprehensive restructuring of American life, everything from its institutions and laws to its basic economic system. What's more, the party now had the numbers and influence to make demands of their country. Needless to say, the U.S. government was well aware of this turn of events, and the counterintelligence efforts that for years have been aimed at monitoring and creating friction among African-American radicals intensified. Huey's celebrity served to further the scrutiny. The FBI, in its own words, sought to, quote, expose, disrupt, misdirect, discredit, or otherwise neutralize the activities of the black nationalists, end quote. Never mind that Huey hadn't been a black nationalist since college, nor was the party a black nationalist group. FBI Director J. Edgar Hoover was determined to prevent the rise of a black, quote, messiah, end quote, by any means necessary. The full extent of the government surveillance of the party, to the extent that, that it can ever be known in full, was not revealed until the late 1980s, long after Revolutionary Suicide was published. Huey, therefore, does not devote substantial attention to these activities. For a comprehensive discussion of the government's role in spying on and ultimately assisting in the destruction of the party, readers should consult his final book, War Against the Panthers, a study, a study of repression in America. As for his first book, Revolutionary Suicide was published at the peak of Huey's fame. Yet for all the exposure he'd had in the media, the public still knew relatively little about his personal life especially his childhood and his path to becoming a revolutionary. The courtroom prosecutors had strenuously sought to reduce him to a, quote, cop killer, end quote, and the press frequently cooperated in these efforts with a decidedly conservative slant in their reporting. Huey's autobiography, therefore, would serve the function Malcolm X's autobiography had a decade before. The book would humanize the icon with highly personal and candid recollections of a troubled past, along with accounts of the crucial birth of political consciousness that would redeem the author and allow him to make his mark on history. Revolutionary suicide introduced readers to new and perhaps surprising elements of Huey's past, including such little-known facts as his being raised in a devoutly religious household by a minister father, growing up illiterate until he taught himself to read in order to prove that he was not stupid, as his teachers claimed, and that the Black Panther Party founders were not street hoodlums but college classmates who turned to a revolutionary platform of armed self-defense after traditional forms of nonviolent protest proved ineffective and disappointing to them. But not everything Huey recalls is admirable. 
and he was not afraid to confess his participation in activities he later found shameful, like prostituting women and stealing from unlocked cars parked outside hospital emergency rooms. True to Huey's spirit, he took responsibility for his mistakes as well as his accomplishments. Okay, let's take a moment to have a reflection. The statement here about when Huey left jail and came out not recognizing the Black Panther Party because of the expansion that had taken place, it started off with a dozen comrades when he went in, something that was very much locally based and had expanded to something that was in a different continent and that had branches in other continents. And then when he talked, they also, Frederica talks about him, him becoming a celebrity and how he had seen other leaders of social protest movements deal with this same process of becoming celebrities through the media and how it would cause them to not have the same effectiveness to lead. And I think that the next statement, it maybe is the even most important part of that whole, of both of the things we just pointed out. And that is Huey never losing sight of the fact that it was only the masses that had the ability to transform society and no individual person. And that brings us back to the concepts of collectiveness and intersectionality that Angela Davis spoke about so regularly within the book, Freedom is a Constant Struggle. And again, that's something that has to be at the forefront of organizing around these issues is the understanding that it won't be any individual leader, won't any individual person, any singular participant. It will be the collective. It will be the masses that, that come together to force these type of changes to happen. And different people just play different roles at different periods of time. I also think it's important for us to understand the history of certain institutions, the history of certain figures. And J. Edgar Hoover is one of those figures who is a part of one of those institutions, being the FBI, that it is important for us to understand the role they have played in repressing social movements, the role that they have played in surveilling and targeting and and the reason that they've done those things have been in an effort to keep people marginalized. You know, this this quote here about J. Edgar Hoover being scared of a, a black messiah rising through the ranks. And it lets you know and it underscores the one of the, the themes that has been regularly occurring in Rockford Reading Daily, and that is the United States of America's fear of black equity or fear of black equality or fear of fear of of the status quo which is marginalizing black people subjugating black people oppressing exploiting black people the fear that this country has historically had in that status quo being broken because of the fact they have found ways to profit off of that status quo and so I just think it's important that we can point out the actors and the institutions that have been part of maintaining that exploitative, oppressive, racist status quo. 
and then uh, again in here you see how you see who these gun laws that exist in this country were truly made for. You know, when people talk about the the right to bear arms, that was not something that they were speaking about for black people or people of color or women. It was about white men's right to bear arms. And you see in here once the it had been introduced into the stratosphere, black men bearing arms in the same manner as white men, they made changes to the legislation. And so that's a, a manifestation of how white America, mainstream America, the American government has consistently moved the goalposts when it comes to black people in this country. Let's continue reading. Revolutionary suicide was also written during a period of important transition in the party. Most notably, Eldridge Cleaver, the Minister of Information, quote, defected, end quote, from the party in 1971. In spite of his influential leadership role, Eldridge and Huey had had uneasy relations from the start. The pair never agreed over what constituted serving the people. To Huey, that meant meeting the needs of poor and working-class African Americans, while for Eldridge, it was leading the masses in armed rebellion. Eldridge's, quote, revolution now, end quote, rhetoric frightened and alienated black communities who were more concerned about jobs, housing, and a decent education for their children. After his departure, the Black Panther sought to reconnect to the people by launching an ambitious series of free services called, quote, survival programs, end quote. Through donations and volunteer support, the party provided groceries, medical care, and legal counsel, among other essential services, to tens of thousands of African Americans nationwide. The photographs taken at these public gatherings speak to the excitement of those events. On the other hand, this was also a period of great sadness. A handful of the most respected Black Panther Party leaders were murdered in secession by government agents. Al Prentice, quote, Bunchy, and quote, Carter, Fred Hampton, John Huggins, George Jackson, and Bobby Hutton, to, he, to whom Huey dedicates revolutionary suicide. Their contributions were enormous, and I can assure you that the loss of any one of these beloved comrades was felt far more profoundly than the loss of Eldridge or that of the small band of former members who followed him in this so-called split. It's fitting that Huey dedicated this book to Bobby Hutton, the first member to join the party after Huey and Bobby Seale and the first Black Panther to be killed. Bobby was just 17 years old when, after a standoff, police gunned down the unarmed youth as he surrendered. Huey was devastated by the murder, but also clear-eyed enough to understand that a revolutionary is a, quote, doomed man, end quote. In other words, every revolutionary fighter, by definition, struggles against the power imbalance of the establishment and the cost of this struggle is often paid with one's own life. Huey coined the term, quote, revolutionary suicide, end quote, to describe this phenomenon. Not to be confused with what he calls, quote, reactionary suicide, end quote, wherein a person kills himself in despair and helplessness. Revolutionary suicide is infused with the possibility that one's death will further the revolutionary cause. As Huey explains, quote, 
It is better to oppose the forces that would drive me to self-murder than to endure them. Although I risk the likelihood of death, there is at least the possibility, if not the probability, of changing intolerable conditions. Revolutionary suicide does not mean that I and my comrades have a death wish. It means just the opposite. We have such a strong desire to live with hope and human dignity that existence without them is impossible. When reactionary forces crush us, we move against these forces, even at the risk of death. End quote. Bobby Hutton died a revolutionary suicide, and the publication of this new edition of Huey's autobiography will help ensure that readers for generations will remember him along with all the other fallen Black Panther Party comrades whose lives must not be forgotten. After revolutionary suicide came out, the party experienced a period of turmoil that lasted until its demise about seven years later. Intensified divisions within the organization were exasperated by the infiltration of secret government agents who sought to bring down the party from within. False reports of comrades turning traitors led Huey to distrust and expel key party members, including Black Panther Party chairman and co-founder Bobby Seale. His successor, Chairman Elaine Brown, and Chief of Staff and childhood friend David Hilliard. Compounding Huey's government-inspired paranoia was his drug addiction, and his actions under the influence confounded and worried his allies. Huey's personal troubles climaxed in 1974 when he was falsely charged with murdering an Oakland woman. Fearful that he would not receive a fair trial under California's Republican governor, Huey fled to Cuba, where he lived in exile until a Democrat was elected governor in 1976. As with his previous murder trial, Huey was once again acquitted. Unlike the previous trial, however, he did not return to the streets a hero. Huey's behavior became more erratic as his addiction worsened and the party slowly began to unravel. I found it endlessly heartbreaking to witness Huey's downward spiral. I urged him toward recovery repeatedly, but in spite of his valiant attempts, he never wanted a life without drugs more than he wanted the drug. His demons were too strong. In many respects, Huey came to feel that he had lived too long, that he had somehow outlived himself. I first met him at a brunch hosted by my mother in our Berkeley home in 1971. I was 19 years old and, unlike my mother, who was the party's real estate agent, not at all politically active. In fact, I was intimidated by the Black Panthers and used to cross the street to avoid walking past their Berkeley office. Their Berkeley office, excuse me. Although Huey had never met me, I was certain he read between the lines and write me off as a bourgeois college girl. Instead, I was surprised to discover him kind and patient with someone so obviously out of her element. He'd been acquitted of murdering the police officer and released from prison the previous summer so I found the nerve to ask him how it felt to be incarcerated. He explained with great sensitivity that loneliness was the overwhelming emotion. I was so touched by his openness that my fears of Huey dropped away in that moment. No longer the world-famous figure in the wicker chair, here was a man with fears and emotions just like anyone. I immediately felt compassion and protectiveness toward him. He phoned later that day to invite me to his home, and we began our affair that night. I quickly joined the party, first teaching in one of his schools, then as a cadre member working on the Black Panther newspaper at the party's central headquarters. Our relationship, along with my tenure with the Panthers, was short-lived. 
however. Huey fled to Cuba, and I decided to return to college and complete my studies. When I returned home following graduation in 1976, I ran into Huey at a Santana concert, and we resumed an on-again, off-again relationship that culminated in our marriage in 1984. Although I'd known or been involved with Huey for years, our decision to marry was sudden. He phoned me from out of the blue to propose, and one week later we were married in Reno. But the haste with which we wed largely characterized our relationship. There was an unspoken, ever-prevailing sense between us that our life together was fleeting. Some of Huey's closest comrades in the party had been gunned down, and the constant presence of an armed bodyguard in our lives was a daily reminder that Huey might meet the same fate. Of course, we attempted to live our lives as if we were ordinary family, flying kites with my son from a previous marriage and taking him on picnics into the pumpkin patch for Halloween. But there was no denying the reality that Huey was and always would be a threat to the establishment. The government retaliated in a variety of ways. The IRS put a lien against our assets. Our home was raided and ransacked by the police twice. And Huey was charged with and later acquitted of the illegal possession of a gun. In the process, we lost our home and became homeless, living with friends and relatives wherever possible. Throughout this ordeal, we nevertheless struggled to maintain some semblance of a happy family life. Much has been written about Huey's final years and the demise of the party. I would encourage anyone interested in these details to read David Hilliard's This Side of Glory and Huey, Spirit of the Panther. These books provide a candid insider's account of Huey's tragic freefall by a lifelong comrade who saved his own life by becoming a member of Alcoholics Anonymous. As it happens, much has also been written about these events by self-proclaimed, quote, authorities, end quote. Primarily journalists and professors who, in order to call attention to their work, stooped to portraying Huey and the party in exclusively outlandish terms. J. Edgar Hoover himself could not perform a more thorough assassination of character, and I'm left to wonder what function these politically motivated attacks serve other than to advance the careers of these authors. As president of the Dr. Huey P. Newton Foundation, the nonprofit organization I helped establish to remember Huey and the party, I welcome responsible historical reassessments and hope that this new edition of Revolutionary Suicide assists in that purpose. Although this book was published more than 25 years ago, it remains the definitive account of Huey's life in Black Panther history. He never got around to writing a sequel, which would have included, among other highlights, the PhD he earned from the University of Santa Cruz, selections from his academic writings along with a comprehensive collection of seminal essays written during his Black Panther tenure can be found in the Huey P. Newton Reader. Sadly, Huey did not live to see the publication of the Reader or the addition of revolutionary suicide into the distinguished Penguin Classics Library. He was murdered in 1989 by a drug dealer who claimed he killed the former party leader in order to get to, quote, in order to, quote, get respect and become a shot caller, end quote, for the gang he belonged to. Still, Huey would have been thrilled to see this new edition of his autobiography. He understood that whether he lived or died, the crucial point was that his work would live on, that the people would carry on the fight in his absence. As Huey tells us, Quote, I will fight until I die, however that may come. 
but whether I'm around or not to see it happen, I know that the transformation of society inevitably will manifest the true meaning of all power to the people. End quote. Although this transformation has yet to be realized these many years later, revolutionary suicide reminds us that one intrepid person can help promote the process that brings about revolutionary change. Frederica Newton, 2009. And that brings us to the end of the introduction of Huey P. Newton's revolutionary suicide. And it brings us to the beginning of the book, to the first, I should say not the beginning of the book, but to the first chapter of the book. Is it the first chapter or is this like an introduction? Let me see. Well, I guess we just read an introduction. It might be another introduction since it's a, okay. The next portion is called A Manifesto, Revolutionary Suicide, The Way of Liberation. But that's not the first chapter, but it is the first page. So we will have a small reflection and then we will end this episode and return tomorrow to begin the next segment. I think that the humanizing of Huey Newton and the realistic depiction of Huey Newton that Frederica gives is very powerful. It reminds us that even though someone may be at the forefront of of movements, may be, may be what some people consider to be considered to be leaders of movements, that they're still human beings who have their own flaws and who have their own traumas that they are dealing with. And that is one of the importances of collectivism so that no one person is held to a standard that is impossible for any human being to be able to maintain. Some of the other small insights that Frederica gives us into Huey Newton's belief of the difference between revolutionary suicide and reactionary suicide, I find to be very powerful as well. I think one of the the first steps for me in this journey was one of understanding the realities and the dangers that come with being involved in, in struggles for freedom, that come with being involved with struggles against injustice. And that is that a lot of time your freedom becomes something that is in the balance. Uh, a lot of times you become somebody who is a target of injustice. And <clears throat> I think that the, the straight to the point way in which Frederica defines revolutionary suicide is something that's very important and is a very important component for us to have when we are laying out our ideologies and laying out our belief systems. Okay, so we will, again, be back tomorrow to continue reading Revolutionary Suicide by Huey P. Newton. And I want to thank people for taking the time to listen to this episode. And I want to remind people we put out new episodes of Rafa Reading Daily on a daily basis to provide people the opportunity to begin or further their journey in the struggle against police terrorism, mass incarceration, and racial injustice. I'll let you tomorrow at 8.